Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is Brad Constantine, as usual, and uh, this is going to be Mosiah chapter 15. So one thought I want you to have is we've talked a little bit about the resurrection, that Jesus is resurrected and that others will be resurrected. And and uh, what I want to ask you is, who's going to resurrect you? What, what, will, be, what will be the process uh, for you to be resurrected? Uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the lesson here, so stay tuned. All right, chapter 15, verse 1. And now, Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. We know that Christ is Jehovah, the, old, the God of the Old Testament. This message of Abinadi is similar to the message given by an angel to King Benjamin earlier in the Book of Mormon. And because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son, the Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. So he's mortal and divine. And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. Our Lord is also called the Father in the sense that he is the Father or creator of the heavens and the earth and all things. Joseph Fielding Smith said that. Jesus Christ is referred to several times in the Book of Mormon as both the Father and the Son. The question might well be asked, in what way or in what sense is Jesus Christ both the Father and the Son? The words Father and Son are titles rather than names. Thus, they may be used to refer to more than one person. The term Father may rightfully be used to refer to Jesus Christ in the following areas. One, Jesus Christ is the Father of those who accept the gospel because it is through his atonement that the gospel is made active on this earth. And uh, two, Jesus Christ is the Father of this earth in the sense that he created this earth under the direction of his Father. Three, Jesus Christ is the Father because of divine investiture of power, that is, Jesus Christ has been given the power to act for and represent his Father on this earth. And four, other dictionary definitions of Father that might be used to refer to Jesus Christ are as follows. One to whom respect is due, one who cares as a father might, an originator, source, or prototype, one who claims or accepts responsibility. The term Son also has varied meanings. Jesus Christ is rightfully referred to as the Son in the following sense. One, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of God in the Spirit. Two, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. Three, Jesus Christ submitted his will to the will of the Father. So those things, and those, that's written by uh, Daniel Ludlow. Verse 5, and thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, when mortals become totally subject to God, they will have passed the test and are ready to go on. Hugh Nibley said that. Uh, and thus the flesh becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to the temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged, and cast out and disowned by his people. Brigham Young said, We have to fight continually, as it were, sword in hand, to make the spirit master of the tabernacle, or the flesh subject to the law of the spirit. Verse 6, And after all this, after working many mighty miracles among the children of men, we, he shall be led even, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. 
Yea, even so shall he be led, crucified and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death, the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. Elder Maxwell said, It was all made possible by the Savior's splendid submissiveness. He did voluntarily what he was not forced to do. It was something no other child of God could do. There was no other God, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Yea, even so he shall be led, crucified and slain, the flesh becoming subject even unto death the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. The imagery and theology of this verse tell us that Jesus was totally, perfectly, and fully consecrated. Being swallowed up means being totally enveloped without question, protest, reservation, or resentment. It is all the way, not halfway. Choosing such spiritual submission is the highest act of deliberate individual will. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Though Jesus' Jesus's will was thus swallowed up, we certainly don't notice any diminution or, or de decreasing of Jesus' individuality after the atonement, do we? In fact, not only was his resplendent, he resplendent, but after the resurrection amid some of his sheep, he declared that his joy was now full. Consecration enhances individuality. Furthermore, when we are swallowed up in his will, we will also know what it is like to be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. In considering consecration, it is well to remember that nothing is held back, whether turf, attitude, or hobbies. One's will is to be swallowed up in the will of God, just as occurred with Jesus. The will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. Most forms of holding back are rooted in pride or are prompted by the mistaken notion that somehow we are diminished by submission to God. Actually, the greater the submission, the greater the expansion. That was Elder Maxwell. Um, I'm sorry, that was from uh, Henry B. Eyring, this last quote. Verse 8, And thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men, and having the power of resurrection. Verse 9, having ascended into heaven, Jesus goes before us to the Father to plead for us to let us in. Having the bowels of mercy being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. And now I say unto you, who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now what say ye, and who shall be his seed? At his death, Jesus went into the spirit world where he ministered unto the righteous who were waiting for his resurrection. These are his seed. Verse 11, Behold, I say unto you, that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their, unto their words and believed that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to that day for a remission of their sins, I say unto you that these are his seed, or they are the heirs of the kingdom of God. For these are they whose sins he has borne. These are they for whom he has died to redeem them from their transgressions. And now, are they not his seed? Yea, and are not the prophets every one that has opened his mouth to prepare to prophesy that has not fallen into transgression? I mean, all the holy prophets ever since the world began, I say unto you that they are his seed. Now he answers the priest's question. Remember, the question was, you know, if you, if you're, why are you speaking so much gloom and doom among us? You aren't you supposed to say glad tidings of great joy? So now Abinadi is going to answer these questions. Are, and these are they who have published peace, who have sought good, who have brought good tidings of good, 
who have published salvation and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth, and how and oh how beautiful upon the mountains are their feet. Speaking in the past, and again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace in the present, and again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall publish peace hereafter. Yea, from this time henceforth and forever, talking about the future. And that's talking about us as well. And behold, I say unto you that this is not all. For, for oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that, it, that is the founder of peace. In other words, Jesus Christ. Yea, even the Lord who has redeemed his people. Yea, him who has gained salvation unto his people. Notice how they speak of this as in the, in the past tense, even though it's yet to be in, in the future. For were it not for the redemption which he hath made for his people, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, I say unto you, were it not for this, all mankind must have perished. But behold, the bands of death shall be broken, and the Son reigneth, and hath power over the dead. Therefore he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. In the premortal life, Jesus was ordained and sustained as Savior and Redeemer. There was no plan B. If Jesus did not succeed, then all would have been lost. But we know uh, that he was successful, and we knew that he would be successful from the very beginning. Verse 21, and there cometh a resurrection, even a first resurrection. The first resurrection includes both celestial and terrestrial kingdom people. He is not talking about the time of the resurrection, but the condition of it. Yea, even a resurrection of those that have been and who are and who shall be even until the resurrection of Christ, for so shall he be called. This first resurrection is not to be confused with the first resurrection spoken of in the Doctrine and Covenants, which has reference to the coming forth from the grave of the faithful saints from the time of Christ to the time of his second coming. Those living in the millennium are also spoken of as coming forth in a first resurrection, for they too obtain an exaltation. James E. Talmadge said, Two general resurrections are mentioned in the scriptures, and these may be specified as first and final, or as the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The first was inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, immediately following which many of the saints came forth from their graves. A continuation of this, the resurrection of the just, has been in operation since, and will be greatly extended or brought to pass in a general way in connection with the coming of Christ in his glory at the second coming. The, the, uh, the final resurrection will be deferred until the end of the thousand years of peace and will be in connection with the last judgment. Elder McConkie said, To those who lived before the resurrection of Christ, the day of his coming forth from the dead was known as the first resurrection. Abinadi and Alma, for instance, so considered it. To those who have lived since that day, the first resurrection is yet future and will take place at the time of the second coming. We have no knowledge that the resurrection is going on now or that any persons have been resurrected since the day in which Christ came forth, excepting Peter, James, and Moroni all of whom had special labors to perform in this day, which necessitated tangible resurrected bodies. Uh, now I want to speak about keys of resurrection. Those who have spoken authoritatively about the resurrection have sometimes spoken of it as an ordinance involving keys. The same way other priesthood ordinances require the operation of priesthood power and priesthood keys. President Brigham Young has given us profound and insightful commentary on the core doctrine of the Christian faith. All who have lived on the earth according to the best light they had and would have received the fullness of the gospel had it been preached to them are worthy of a glorious resurrection and will attain to this by being administered for in the flesh by those who have the authority. All others will have a resurrection and receive a glory except those who have sinned against the Holy Ghost. It is supposed by this people that we have 
all the ordinances in our possession for life and salvation and exaltation, and that we are administering in these ordinances. This is not the case. We are in possession of all the ordinances that can be administered in the flesh, but there are other ordinances and administrations that must be administered beyond this world. I know you would ask what they are. I will mention one. <clears throat> we have not, neither can we receive here, the ordinance and the keys of the resurrection. They will, they will be given to those who have passed off this stage of action and have received their bodies again, as many have already done and many more will. They will be ordained by those who hold the keys of the resurrection to go forth and resurrect the saints. Just as we receive the ordinance of baptism, then the keys of authority to baptize others for the remission of their sins. This is one of the ordinances we cannot receive here, and there are many more. We hold the authority to dispose of, alter, and change the elements, but we have not received authority to organize native element to even make a, a, a spear of grass grow. That was Brigham Young. Closer to our day, President Kimball in a general conference address said or confirmed that no one now living holds the keys of resurrection, and that is not because we lack the desire to possess them. President Kimball said, do we have the keys of resurrection? I buried my mother when I was 11, my father when I was in my early 20s. I have missed my parents much. If I had the power to re of resurrection, as did the Savior of the world, I would have been tempted to try to have kept them longer. We do not know of anyone who can resurrect the dead as did Jesus the Christ when he came back to mortality. <clears throat> Nevertheless, President Kimball promised the faithful will receive not only the keys of resurrection, but also the power of Godhood in the resurrection. <clears throat> we talk about the gospel in its fullness, yet we realize that a large part is still available to us as we prepare, as we perfect, and as we become more like our God. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we read of Abraham, who had already attained Godhood. He has received many powers, undoubtedly, that he would like to have and will eventually get if we continue faithful and perfect and perfect our lives. When Jesus, <clears throat> when Jesus' spirit re-entered his physical body in the garden tomb that first Easter morning, he became the first person on this earth to receive the keys of resurrection. It is true that he inherited the power to take up his body again from his father, Elohim at the time of his mortal birth, but he received the keys of resurrection only after his own resurrection. President Joseph Fielding Smith said uh, the sequence this way, Jesus Christ did for us something that we could not do for ourselves. Through his infinite atonement, on the third day after the crucifixion, he took up his body and gained the keys of the resurrection, and thus has power to open the graves for all men. But this he could not do until he had first passed through death himself, and conquered. Also, this important doctrine, for it means that the keys of resurrection are conferred after one has been resurrected, and those keys are then used to resurrect others. Jesus was the prototype, having obtained the keys of resurrection himself after his own experience with resurrection. He then possessed power to resurrect all others. According to President Brigham Young, those keys of resurrection first acquired by the Savior are then further given, extended, or delegated to others who have died and been resurrected. They will be ordained by those who hold the keys of the resurrection to go forth and resurrect the saints, just as we receive the ordinance of baptism, then the keys of authority to baptize others. Thus, in one respect, we might think of the ordinance of resurrection as being like other ordinances which we see performed on this earth. It involves those who possess the authority and keys of resurrection. As President Young and Erastus Snow also taught, the resurrection will be conducted much as other things are done in the kingdom by delegation. 
Just as we cannot bless or baptize ourselves, so we cannot resurrect ourselves. Ordinances are performed on our behalf by those who are authorized to perform the ordinances. Knowing that we, knowing what we do about the importance of worthy fathers guiding and blessing their families in righteousness, it does not seem out of order to believe that worthy fathers and priesthood holders will have the privilege of calling forth their wives or their children or even other members of their family from the grave. Is it not the order of heaven for righteous patriarchs, fathers, grandfathers, and others to bless, baptize, and perform other ordinances for their loved ones? Before Jesus was resurrected, only his Father, our Father in heaven, possessed the keys of resurrection, even though as the Son of God he possessed the power of life in himself independently. After he was resurrected, Jesus acquired the keys of resurrection, which could then be given to others. The illuminating statements of President Young, President Kimball, and President Smith taken together help us to see once again that God's house is a house of order. As a result of his own resurrection, Jesus now controls all power and all keys under the direction of his Father, which he delegates to others as they are worthy and become prepared to possess the various powers of godliness. These powers are then used to bless the human family. This is true for the keys of resurrection as well as all other power and authority. And that was by Andrew Skinner. Verse 22, and now the resurrection of all the prophets and all those that have believed in their words or all those that have kept the commandments of God shall come forth in the resurrection. Therefore, they are the first resurrection. The second resurrection or the final resurrection is for those from the celestial or sons of perdition. So as we've learned here so far that uh, it sounds like the keys of resurrection will be given and so that uh, righteous fathers will be able to resurrect their own children and, and wives and uh, that that'll be a great blessing to us. Verse 23, they are raised to dwell with God in the celestial kingdom who has redeemed them. Thus they have eternal life through Christ who has broken the bands of death. And these are those who have part in the first resurrection. And these are they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them. These are terrestrial, but still part of the first resurrection. And thus the Lord bringeth about the restoration of these. And they have a part in the first resurrection or have eternal life being redeemed by the Lord. Joseph Fielding Smith said, we are taught that we will be punished for our own sins, but what, of the, what if these millions who sinned ignorantly, not having any knowledge of the mission of the Son of God? According to the divine plan, the truth of the gospel must eventually be declared to them, for it is written that the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. We are taught that mankind through the ages will be judged by the privileges and opportunities to know the truth. If a person never had the opportunity to know anything about the plan of salvation, then surely he should not be held accountable for his deeds in the flesh on an equality with the man who knew the truth and then refused to obey it. Thousands of these people who lived in this ignorance were devout and faithful to the doctrines which they had been taught. They cannot be held accountable for their actions which were done in faith and obedience to that which they devoutly believed and had been taught. Fortunately, the Lord will judge us all by the intent of the heart as well as by our understanding. Therefore, it seems that it was only a matter of justice for the Lord to do what Abinadi said he would do and permit these who innocently died in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them to have part in this great resurrection. Uh, verse 25, and little children also have eternal life. Joseph Smith said, I have meditated upon the subject and asked the question, why is it that infants, innocent children, are taken away from us, especially those that seem to be the most intelligent and interesting. The strongest reasons that present themselves to my mind are these. This world is a very wicked world, and it is a proverb that the world grows weaker and wiser. 
If that is the case, the world grows more wicked and corrupt. In the earlier ages of the world, a righteous man and a man of God and of intelligence had a better chance to do good, to be believed and received than at the present day. But in these days, such a man is not is much opposed and persecuted by most of the inhabitants of the earth, and he has much sorrow to pass through here. The Lord takes many away, even in infancy, that they may escape the envy of man and the sorrows and evils of this present world. They were too pure, too lovely to live on earth. Therefore, if rightly considered, instead of mourning, we have reason to rejoice as they are delivered from evil and we shall soon have them again. Verse 26, but behold and fear and tremble before God for he for ye ought to tremble for the Lord redeemeth none such that rebel against him and die in their sins. Those who ignore or reject the higher counsel from God and his prophets are in open rebellion to God and his plan of salvation. Yea, even all those that have perished in their sins ever since the world began, that have willfully rebelled against God, that have known the commandments of God and would not keep them, these are they that have no part in the first resurrection. In other words, they're not going to be exalted in the celestial kingdom. Amulek noted, after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. However, this statement is sometimes misinterpreted. The night of darkness is not death, but resurrection. The day of this life, or in other words, the, the probationary state or preparatory state in which we prepare for eternity, includes the post-mortal sojourn in the spirit world. Were this not the case, there would be no purpose in preaching the gospel to the dead or in performing ordinances for them. Unlike water baptisms, faith and repentance cannot be performed vicariously. Only the immortal spirit can exercise faith unto salvation. Eternal life depends upon eternal obedience. And that was from Rodney Turner. Uh, and then this quote, To those who lived before the Savior was resurrected, his resurrection was known as the first resurrection. To those who lived after this pivotal point in mankind's history, the first resurrection will take place at the second coming. Some who have inherited celestial glory were resurrected with the Savior, and others of that group have been resurrected since that time. All those who have not yet been resurrected at the Savior's second coming will be resurrected either at that time or as the millennium draws to a close. Verse 27, Therefore ought ye not to tremble for salvation or exaltation and eternal life cometh to none such, for the Lord hath redeemed none such. Yea, neither can the Lord redeem such, for he cannot deny himself, for he cannot deny justice when it has its claim. Now he's quoting again from Isaiah. And now I say unto you that the time shall come that the salvation of the Lord shall be declared to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Yea, Lord, thy watchmen shall lift up their voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Isaiah is speaking of the millennium. Bring forth into, break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. And thus ends uh, this part of uh, the words that were spoken by Abinadi. And we'll get into the next part later. Thanks for being here. See you next time. Bye.